Of the books that we overview on Wednesday night, this might be the most challenging. Because the book of Psalms is effectively a hymn book. We don't have hymn books anymore. I always joke that one of these days, with all of the challenges in technology that we have, that there's going to be some young, bright seminary student sitting in a classroom, and he's going to say, you know what, teacher? It would be a brilliant idea if we just put all these songs in a book, and we could just turn to the page, you know? Um, but in any event, if, if, if you're familiar with, and I trust that you are, a hymn book, that is effectively what the book of Psalms is. In fact, the book of Psalms is divided itself into five books. Naturally, there are the chapters, 150 in our English translations, but there are books within the book, and you'll find them noted along the way. In fact, if you go ahead and turn to Psalm 1, you will note that above the heading in your Bible that reads Psalm 1, there is an additional heading that reads Book 1. Book 1 of the Psalms are chapters 1 through 41. Book 2 are chapters 42 through 72. Book 3, 73 to 89. 90 through 106 make up Book 4. And Book 5 is 107 to 150. Now, I was in a conversation with, uh, with one of our planners the other day who's preparing to go through the Psalms um, for over an extended period of time. And, and he was asking, do you have a commentary or would you point me to someone? And, and I really didn't. One of the things that I was sort of pressing him at and interested in hearing it was whether or not in his study he had come across any treatment of how the psalms are collected. These are individual chapters, individual songs within the book of Psalms, but at certain points along the way, there is some harmony about the way they are arranged. There are certain books that you can look to, and you'll note, for instance, in book five, the last book in the Psalms, these are almost exclusively hymns, and they're hymns of praise. They're, they're in fact, if, if I were just in jest trying to describe what book five is, I'd say it's the contemporary hymn section of the book of Psalms. It's just got a little more rhythm, a little more repetition, a little more cadence than some of the previous chapters in the book of Psalms. Many chapters are quite substantive. Most chapters were set to music so that they could be sang, and for all Hebrews, the Psalms would have been committed to memory, a part of Boyhood education would be to memorize the Psalms as well as the law. The best way to give you a big picture look at how the Psalms uh, operate or what is contained within the book of Psalms is to note together that there are basically seven kinds of Psalms and they are listed in the notes which are before you tonight. There are basic hymns. They are, there are penitential psalms, which means psalms that express remorse, contrition, sorrow over sin, and ask that God would restore. Think Psalm 51, David, after his sin with Bathsheba, calling out to God that God would restore to him the joy of his salvation. There are wisdom psalms, which we'll look at first. Uh, they speak proverbially about the way life works. They set forth certain principles, axioms for living that can serve us in a variety of different ways. There are royal psalms. These are psalms 
that are spoken by or speak of the king, uh, the kings of David, those kings in the lineage of David, and often the royal psalm will be mixed and mingled together with the fifth category of psalm, which is messianic. The messianic psalms celebrate not only the king at hand or a king who is coming, but the king who is coming, namely Jesus Christ. There are lament psalms such as Psalm 3, which we'll look at in just a moment. Uh, These psalms are basically expressing grief over where we find ourselves in life. And then there are the imprecatory psalms, which are basically songs and prayers that ask that God would do bad things to one's enemy. We'll deal with that a bit in the time that we have together as well. Let's look first at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 represents a wisdom psalm, and this is a great psalm to commit to memory. Verse 1, how happy is the man who doesn't follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment, and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin." So we've referred to Psalm 1 as a wisdom psalm. The the primary example of wisdom genre in the Bible is the book of Proverbs. And one one of the ways that I often hear Proverbs being mistreated is by taking a proverb as though it presents a hard and fast concrete principle without exception. That's not the way wisdom literature is intended to operate. If you think even about Proverbs and even in English or American culture, there's a certain flexibility about them. They communicate a a principle, a truth, but it's not always true 100% of the time. For the most part it is, it's an expression of wisdom. For instance, my grandmother's favorite, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Well, that's true, right? One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. But there are some rare exceptions where a gang of friends who love Jesus with all their heart are able to put their arms around a lost person who's just a bonehead and love them to Jesus. That can happen. It, it does happen. It's an exceptional thing when it does. But that doesn't negate the truthfulness or the wisdom of the proverb that one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. An example of a way that Proverbs can be mistreated or abused is Proverbs 22.6, rather. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Moms and dads of wayward children have been bludgeoned with that verse, as though somehow along the way they dropped the ball. Here's a hard, cold training and admonition of the Lord. More times than not, that will result in a young person that loves Jesus. But there are exceptions There are some cases where moms and dads have truly done the absolute best that they knew how to do, and things just eventually go awry. I would point out with regards to Proverbs 22.6 that the translation of that verse is not nearly as settled as what one one would suggest it is. It, It may be, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
It may also be train up a child the way he desires to go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In other words, if you let him do what he wants to do for all his days, all he will ever do is what he wants to do. In principle, proverbially, there is wisdom in both of those potential translations. But again, there are exceptions to those rules. This works itself out in some ways. It's not as significant as Proverbs 22.6, but it, it is an important element of, of Psalm 1. How happy is the man who doesn't follow the advice of the wicked. Verse 4, the wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff. The wind blows away. The wicked will not survive the judgment. Sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. It, isn't it true that sometimes lost people, people given to ungodliness, are quite happy by appearance? And isn't it true that there are times when sinners make their way into the community of the faithful, into the community of the righteous? There's a certain flexibility about the truth that's being communicated in the passage. But it doesn't, it doesn't in any way negate the truthfulness of the blessed state of the man who makes his delight in the law of the Lord, who enjoys the stability of faithfulness to God. He's like a tree planted by streams of water with roots and depth that hold him fast in the day of great difficulty. The righteous here are referred to as always prospering. Their leaf does not wither. The reality is there are times when the leaves of the righteous will wither. There are times when there can be great difficulty for those who give themselves to faithfully following Jesus. There are times when the work of the righteous man's hand does not prosper. But in principle, this does not negate the, the wisdom, the truth of what is described in this passage, a celebration of the blessed state of the man who gives himself to following faithfully after Jesus for all of his days. So that's how wisdom operates. That's how wisdom functions in the Psalms, in the Proverbs, in the book of Job, in Ecclesiastes, and in a few, uh, a few other places along the way. You need to look for that. Wisdom literature is one of those things that's difficult to define comprehensively. In other words, it's difficult for me to say when you see A, B, and C, you can know that you're dealing with wisdom. But it is much easier to recognize when you see it than it is to define it. There's a likelihood that when you see wisdom literature, you know what you're looking at, you know what you're reading. Be careful that you're employing the interpretive tools of wisdom as you're reading those Proverbs-like passages. In the New Testament, James is known for wisdom literature. It's often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. But you bump into this kind of thing uh, often along the way. Psalm 2 is, is the next kind of psalm that we're going to look at. And, and it is a royal psalm. But it can also be regarded as a messianic psalm, as a psalm that alludes to uh, the coming of the Son of David, we know to be specifically as Jesus. These royal psalms talk about, they celebrate or memorialize the work of one of Israel's kings, one of Judah's kings, and, and they're, they're almost exclusively, if not exclusively, exclusively, the sons of David. So it's easy to see how a royal psalm could veer into the lane of a messianic psalm. So many of those kings of Judah, those sons of David, function in the Bible as typological foreshadowings of Jesus. 
In other words, what you see in them, at least what honorable aspects of their life you observe in them, are the foreshadowing of what comes in, the, in its fullness in the person of Jesus. In, chapter, in Psalm 2, uh, verse 1, the Bible says, Why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. This is the psalm that the apostles quote as they gather to pray when Peter and John have been arrested. Why do the nations rage and the Gentiles plot vain things? Not only are they remembering their psalm too, they're also celebrating the outcome that Psalm 2 speaks of, which is the ultimate victory of the Messiah over all things. Every king and every nation will ultimately bow at the feet of King Jesus and confess him to be Lord of all. Verse 4, the Bible says, the, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the end of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. Now, this would have been celebrated. It would have been a way of acknowledging the providence of God in providing a king in the lineage of David for the nation of Judah. But you can see so apparently how there are foreshadowings of the coming of Jesus, our true king, the king of all kings, the king we have long anticipated and wanted for, and how these promises of God, only fulfilled in part in the earthly experience of those kings of Judah, comes to full fruition in the life and ministry of Jesus. I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll shatter them like pottery. This speaks of the ultimate victory and lordship of Jesus over all things and all peoples. Verse 10, the Bible says, So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he'll be angry and you'll perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All celebrate the place of the King of Judah on the throne in the line of David. But over the course of time, and especially as the New Testament reflects on Israel's scripture in the Old Testament, comes to be applied to the person and work of Jesus. All that is foretold, celebrated, and promised in these messianic psalms finds its full fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 3 is a psalm of lament. If you're a person who struggles with deep sorrow, with anguish, with sadness, I, I'm hesitant to use the word depression, but I, I think that's an appropriate term, you can often find your feelings reflected on in the Psalms, and you might find helpful ways of voicing your sorrow before the Lord. You know, there's some emotions that are difficult to know how to express before God. We certainly don't want to come before God without reverence. So the Psalms can function for us 
as a way of, of fellowshipping with God in a biblically appropriate way, expressing the deep affections we may have in a given season of our life. If there is a single emotion expressed more often than others in the Psalms, it is the emotion of lament or grief or sorrow or sadness. Think of how often this comes up. Even in those psalms of repentance, those penitential psalms that we mentioned a moment ago, what, what, what is the emotion that compels the believer to come before God in repentance? It is godly sorrow that stirs repentance, the Bible says. Often in the life of David, he's compelled to come before God in lament because of the political circumstances of his life as king of, of Judah. In fact, in Psalm 3, David comes before God lamenting his circumstance during a season of his life when he's been forced to abdicate the throne for a period of time because his, his own son Absalom, and I would add his favored son, has raised an army against David and run him out of town. David is living in exile for the second time in his life, only this time it's not Saul who's out to have his head. It's his own son, the apple of his eye, his favored boy. So David comes before God lamenting in these eight verses. Psalm 3 in verse 1. The Bible says, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and, and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I'm not afraid of the thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. So David laments in verses 1 and 2. These are kind of the key component parts of the lament psalm. He says, here's my issue. I'm run out of Dodge by my son Absalom. And the people are accusing me. And they wag their finger and they shake their head and they say there's no help for him in God. God, God has forsaken David. God has turned his back on David or perhaps even that David had turned his back on on God. But in verses 3 and 4, David gives expression to the trust, the enduring trust and confidence that he has in God's provision. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Those psalms will often end with a word of praise or even a specific petition asking that God would intervene in a particular way. Rise up, Lord, save me. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. Break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Do you note on the right-hand side, below each of those major sections, the word Selah, S-E-L-A-H. Do you know what that means? I don't, I don't know what it means either, if you don't know. I, I don't know that anyone knows with absolute certainty what it means. Um, it, it may be some kind of musical indication. It may be just a way of saying praise the Lord. It may be a note of celebration. And there are some ideas about what it means, but it occurs throughout the book of Psalms, and I would love to one day know in heaven exactly what is intended by Selah. Maybe 
maybe, but there's so nobody. There's a lot of suggestions, but there's no real certainty. And lots of times you'll find a note somewhere in a study Bible or a commentary, and that author will speak with certainty about what Selah means. But then if you consult another commentary or another study Bible, you'll find a note and another author speaking just as confidently that it means something else. You'll see those popping up all over uh, your studies in the book of Psalms, which is why I think it's probably something uh, related to music. A, a, a note, a word of celebration with an especially musical point of emphasis. Psalm 8 is the next psalm that I want us to look at. Psalm 8 is an example of a hymn in the psalms. The hymns tend to be quite substantive. In other words, they're telling a story, they're communicating certain doctrinal truths, or they're maybe even rehearsing Israel's history and God's provision for them along the way. You'll note again at the, at the top of a lot of these psalms that there's a, a, a word about the music to which these psalms were set. For instance, in Psalm 8, the, the subheading is for the choir director on the Giddith, a Davidic psalm, which, which is some points of reference for the song leader, the music leader, as these psalms are sang uh, in, in the worship gathering. Verse 1 says, Yahweh our Lord, how mag magnificent is your name, throughout the earth. The psalm ends the same way in verse 9. Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. This is a psalm that's intended to highlight the magnificence of our God's name in all the earth, the various ways that creation is telling the glory of our God. In the remainder of verse 1, the Bible says, you've covered the heavens with your majesty. Because of your adversaries, you've established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. Not only does God receive glory from the heavens, not only are the heavens telling the glory of our God, but even unlearned children at a place and age at which they, they're not able to distinguish their right hand from their left, they, they enter the world with some degree of understanding that there is a God in heaven who has fashioned the heavens and the earth. Verse 3, the Bible says, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him? The son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen as well as the animals in the sky, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the crash and in his image and the complexity of mankind as a creation bespeaks the glory of our God. You really ought to think about that from time to time as you think through, process, meditate on the frailty of your life. The billions on billions of cells that are floating around comprising the body that you enjoy as this earthly tent. And even within those cells, the complexity of each cell and all that is required to make that cell function and operate as it is intended to do. All cancer is, is a malformation of one or more of those cells. 
And the only thing that prevents every cell in our body from deforming itself and developing some kind of cancerous, terminal, disastrous outcome at this very moment is the sustaining grace of God in our life. Every aspect of our life bespeaks His glory. And then when you look at mankind and the ingenuity and the creativity and the intelligence that mankind enjoys relative to the animal kingdom, I realize it is an apparently diminishing intelligence these days, but it is no less superior to the animals of the earth. That bespeaks the glory of our God. The birds of the air, the fish of the, sp of the sea, creation itself is telling the glory of our Lord. Indeed, how magnif magnificent is his name in all the earth. The next psalm I want us to look at is Psalm 22. This is an exclusively messianic psalm. I mentioned to you as we're beginning, I'm fascinated by, I don't know the answers to these questions and I don't have all the insight, but I'm fascinated by how it is that the psalms take their structure. There are some examples in the Psalms of secutively. For instance, it seems to me by design, that is by God's design, that Psalm 22, which speaks to the work of Jesus so plainly, is followed by Psalm 23, which is the shepherd's psalm, the 23rd psalm, the Lord is my shepherd which is followed by Psalm 24, which is, again, a Davidic song that speaks of the kingship of the sons of David and ultimately the kingship of Jesus. This is one of those places in the hymn book where there seems to be a rather intentional ordering of these particular songs. Psalm 22 is powerfully messianic. And many of the verses that we'll read in Psalm 22, you'll remember from your studies in the New Testament. In fact, I have notes all across my copy of Psalm 22, the word remember and the question mark, reminding me to take note of how this verse is applied within the context of Jesus's life and ministry. I've shared with you before my interest in how the New Testament uses the Old Testament and a few weeks ago, when we looked at the book of Deuteronomy, we noted that Deuteronomy is the third most often cited book in the New Testament. The, the first most cited book in the New Testament from the Old Testament is the book of Psalms. The second is the book of Isaiah. So the Psalms factor considerably in communicating the message of Jesus in that New Testament context. When Jesus says, the law, the writings, and the prophets speak of me. He's saying the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the writings, namely the Psalms, and there are a few other works that would come under the banner of writings, but writings in, within that category of writings, and those are Jewish categories for the Old Testament, the Psalms feature most prominently, and the prophets would include both the former and latter prophets, all of those prophetic books and many of the historical books. When Jesus says, the law, the writings, and the prophets testify of me, it seems that central to that declaration is the book of Psalms as it becomes the primary source book for teaching the message of the gospel from its Old Testament origins. Verse 1. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember that verse in its New Testament context? It's one of Jesus' seven declarations from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's not just a statement of anguish from the cross. It is a recitation of Psalm 22, which I think carries with it all of the necessary baggage and context of Psalm 22. The psalm that begins with great anguish but ends in great victory. The burdens that the psalmist bears on the back end of this great agonizing cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, are the key to his deliverance in the end of the psalm. Perhaps it is that from the cross, Jesus is not only giving expression to his anguish of heart, or perhaps even the agonizing, excruciating pain he would have experienced on the cross and through all that he endured in the hours leading up to the cross. Perhaps Jesus is saying, even as he expresses this anguish, that there is victory for me on the other side of this episode of great grief. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. The psalmist is saying, I don't get it. I don't know how you're at work. But the pattern of Israel's history has been that even in seasons of some duress, we've trusted you and you have always delivered. And though I may not understand the way you're at work at the present moment, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to remain confident that my situation will work out even as those who've come before me have. Verse 6, but I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by men and despised by people, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. Here's the quote. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. Remember that? What was it that they said when Jesus cried out from the cross? He saved others. Let him save himself. They may not know it, but they're reflecting the attitudes of those who opposed the Messiah as foretold hundreds of years before Jesus' miraculous virgin birth. Verse 9, the Bible says, You took me from the womb, making me secure while at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. The bulls of Bashan were those wild cattle that roamed the eastern plateau, the eastern pastures, and they were known to be somewhat dangerous if you got into proximity of them. They opened their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. 
A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, let's talk about that verse for just a moment. They pierced my hands and my feet. This is a psalm written shortly after the, the kingship of David during the Davidic monarchy. So the best case scenario is this is a psalm written 600 years before the birth of Jesus. There is, there is no Roman crucifixion in the ancient world 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, here's a principle. I want you to remember this, and, and I don't know the answers, but here's a principle. Psalm 22 had to mean something to its immediate audience before it meant anything to us. Now, I don't know what experience, what phenomenon in 600 B.C. accounts for the piercing of one hands, one's hands and feet, but it was not crucifixion. However, this verse comes to fit as though it were tailored specifically for the experiences of Jesus so many hundreds of years later. It is uncanny the way Psalm 22 runs parallel to the agony that Jesus endures in those last hours of his life. Look at verse 17. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among, themse among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Remember? Remember how those Roman guards gathered and they cast lots and divided the garments of our Savior? But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you and the congregation. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him, for he's not despised or detested the torment of the afflicted. He didn't hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great congregation because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and tell a people yet to be born about his righteousness and all that he's done. Now, if I'm right, and what Jesus is doing on the cross is importing all of the content and the background of Psalm 22 into his present experience on the cross... How, how, how much more now do we see or understand in the statement that Jesus makes when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The focus is always there on the forsakenness of Jesus and how does it work that the Father and the Son who are inseparably and eternally bound together, how can forsakenness be the experience of Jesus? And I don't have the answer to that. But I can tell you that there is far more being stated by our Savior 
than often meets the eye when we look to Psalm 22. Often with just a few words making reference to a body of literature, a song, a passage, we can bring that, we can import that full context into the present conversation. And that's precisely what Jesus does from the cross with his quote of Psalm 22 in verse number 1. Look over for just a moment at Psalm 38. We're almost out of time. But look quickly at Psalm 38. This is one of those penitential songs. It's a psalm of regret. It's a psalm of remorse. A psalm asking God for forgiveness. Verse 1, the Bible says, Lord, don't punish me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has pressed down on me. Here's the thing. I point this out all the time because we try to sidestep this. The psalmist is clear that what he's experiencing is the work of God's sovereign hand against him. Anytime bad things happen in the experience of the psalmist, and I think this is true across the board for biblical people, biblical characters, there is the acknowledgement that God's hand is at work in this, that God has not abdicated the throne, turned his head away, and Satan slipped in unexpectedly. Now, in contemporary Christianity, we, we want, in some ways, to remove any responsibility that God might be perceived as ha- having, so when something bad happens, we speak of God allowing something rather than ordaining something. And I get sometimes an effort at softening conversation for the sake of being winsome before the lost. But make no mistake about it, every scintilla of our life, the good things and the bad, have been ordered, arranged, and orchestrated by our God for good purposes, even when those things are essentially bad things. There will be bad things that are bad by nature can happen and will happen in your life. And yet, at the same time, God is superintending those naturally, inherently bad things for a good and godly purpose. He's just that remarkably brilliant. So the psalmist does not try to sidestep the the difficult question of God's involvement in his life. He just sees his experience as the product of God's lordship over him. In this particular case, and in the case of most penitential psalms, They see their circumstances to be the product of the poor decisions or the sins that they've made or committed in their past. It is not true that every bad thing that happens to us is the product of our sin. The book of Job stands as a monument to this reality. But often it is the case that the bad things that we experience are the direct product of the stupid decisions that we make or the sins that we give ourselves to committing. That is the case for the psalmist in Psalm 38. Verse 3, there is no health in my body because of your indignation. There is no strength in my bones because of my sin. For my sins have flooded over my head. They're a burden too heavy for me to bear. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Don't Don't you just love the honesty? We said a minute ago, if you're, if you're sorrowful, the Psalms can be a good place to go to find direction as to how to express your emotions with reverence before God. If you find yourself in deep sin, the Psalms can be a good place to go to know how to process your foolishness and to make confession in a reverent and suitable manner before the Lord. 
In verse 6, the Bible says, I'm bent over and brought low. All day long I go around in mourning, for my loins are full of burning pain, and there's no health in my body. I am faint and severely crushed. I groan because of the anguish of my heart. Verse 18, the psalmist says, again, I confess my guilt. I'm anxious because of my sin. I am where I am because of what I've done. There are a couple of elements that you'll find appear in all psalms of penitence or repentance. You'll find a cry for help. This is how the psalm ends in verse 22. Hurry to help me, Lord, my Savior, God help me. And you'll find an expression of hope that in spite of the dreadful things that we have done and the powerful judgment of God that has come against us, that he is a good and merciful God who has our interest in view. Look at verse 15. I put my hope in you, Lord. You will answer, Lord my God. This is how you repent. God, I am where I am because of my foolishness. I'm anxious of heart because of my sins, so I confess my guilt. So Lord, hurry to help me. And then we wait quietly with a faithful confidence in our heart that he will answer. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, for these moments to reflect on these great song, uh, psalms and songs of the faith. Help us to find direction in prayer and in worship in the book of Psalms. I pray that you would give us good recall, that you would help us to commit these songs to memory, or that these would be a part of our our daily thoughts, uh, the, part of the rhythm of our life to spend time here with the wisdom that is expressed here and the direction that we find here. I, I pray, God, that, Lord, as we're made aware by your spirit and your word, Lord, of our sin, that we find direction and repentance, that when we're sorrowful of heart, we find insight as to how to rightly give expression to our grief and, and sadness. Lord, even when there are feelings of bitterness, I pray that you would help us through the Psalms to know how to best process those. God, we say with the psalmist tonight, hurry to help, you are our Savior. So often we find ourselves in traps that we ourselves have set. We ask that you deal mercifully with us. Forgive us of all our sins. Do it by the blood of your only Son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.